still in chapter 1, and as we met last time, we studied together verses 15 through 20, and tonight we're going to look at verses 21 through 23, but really 15 through 23 go together as a unit, and so what I'd like to do tonight is read verses 15 through 23 for you, and then zero in on the last three verses there. So let's read beginning in verse 15. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." Father, now I pray that you would help me, help those who hear, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to believe, give us minds to think, give us wills to believe and obey, and help me preach your word faithfully so that Christ would come to have first place in everything. I ask it in His name. Amen. Well, you might call these nine verses, Colossians 1 through 115 through 23, uh, a symphony of Jesus. That's how I began to think of them this week. They are one of Paul's masterpieces of writing. If you take these short nine verses, you have one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus in the New Testament. But it's not a picture, it comes to us in words. And so it's almost musical in its, in its portrayal, almost poetic in its magnification of Jesus. And so I begin to think of it like a masterwork of music this week. And like a masterwork of music, there are, in these verses, many variations and patterns throughout. Lots of different things are said about Jesus. We can go in many different directions in thinking about Jesus from these verses. But as we look at the verses, though there are many variations and many themes running through, there is one recurring theme that drives the piece, just like in a masterwork of music. You come back over and over and over again to the main theme of the symphony. And the main theme of this symphony is the end of verse 18, so that he himself will come to have first place in Everything Masterfully, Paul weaves that into everything that he says about Jesus. All that he says about Jesus hinges on and points to this one main symphonic 
theme that Jesus would have first place in everything. In creation. In redemption. In His coming again. In the resurrection. In His Lordship over our lives. So that in everything and everyone, Jesus would be first. And like a masterwork of music, this symphony of Jesus also has a grand finale. A movement concluding the piece that outshines all the other movements, which is a fitting and glorious ending that sums up the piece, leaving you mouth dropped open, gazing at the wonder of Christ. And the grand finale is verses 21 through 23, which we take up together tonight. These verses outshine the others in some ways, in many ways, But most of all, I think, because these verses, more than the others that we have read, pluck on our heartstrings. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And here, in the closing of this beautiful piece of writing, we have a Savior like no other Savior. So if... We were to say the theme that drives this piece is that Jesus would have first place. And the grand finale is the portion of the piece that outshines all the other portions, that grabs our attention more readily than all the other portions. And what we would say is that the chief reason why for us sinners Jesus should have first place in our hearts is because although we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled us in His fleshly body through death. That's why we sing. That's why we gather together. That's why we bow down and praise Him. Because He is a Savior, which we have needed so badly. So the cross... As ugly and as shameful as it was, is the most beautiful spot in the universe. And it's the most clear place to see the beauty of Jesus. Now, having spoken of beauty, having having compared this passage to a symphony, we need not overlook the ugliness that is actually here in verses 21 through 23. What we actually have in these three verses is a description of war. So in the midst of this beautiful piece, and these verses are beautiful in themselves, but in the midst of that, there is a war happening. And you can see that clearly from Paul's terminology. His terminology is the terminology of war. The word alienated in verse 21 is a word about war. Two people are alienated. Two armies, two nations are alienated, driven apart from each other. The word hostile, also in verse 21, is a war term, very clearly. The word reconciled is a war term. That's when those alienated enemies finally come to a truce. And the word death, in the middle of verse 22, is a war term. So yes, this is a symphony. Yes, it is grand in its beauty. But this last great movement of Paul's symphony about Jesus actually begins with the drum 
beat of war before it finishes with the sweet strains of peace. So what I want to do tonight is think about war and peace from Colossians 1, 21 through 23. It's a description of world history, the history of man and God, war and peace. And these verses describe it beautifully. And I want to look at them under four headings. War, truce, reconstruction, and terms of peace. Those are the four headings. War, truce, reconstruction, and terms of peace. So first, let's think about war. What Paul is doing here is demonstrating the preciousness of Jesus. Writing a symphony about Jesus. But in order to demonstrate to these Colossians and to us the preciousness of Jesus, he wants to remind us where we've come from. And where we've come from is a war. That's what verse 21 is about. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Remember where you came from, Colossians. Remember where you came from, Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. You were before you met Christ, at war with God. And he describes it in three phrases. I want to look at them together. You were formerly alienated. There's the first one. Alienated. The word alienated literally means to be driven away. Someone is driven away from your presence. They are alienated from you. So what he's saying here is before we met Jesus, we had been driven away from God and driven away by God because of our sin. That's what he's about in the beginning of verse 21. Because you are sinners, God has driven you out of His presence. That's a very good reminder of Adam and Eve, isn't it? This is a perfect picture of someone being driven away from God. They left the garden in shame because of their sin. Now, Julia has a little Bible story book with pictures in it, and it's a Bible story book. It's not the Bible itself, and the pictures aren't inspired by God. We know that. But there's a wonderful picture there when it's describing what happened to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 as they were driven away from God and driven out of the garden. In the picture, Adam has tears streaming down his face. And Eve is covering her face with her hands like a criminal that you see coming out of the courtroom who doesn't want the cameras to see her face. So ashamed. So broken. Because they've been driven away. Alienated from God. We might also think of the people of Israel who sinned against God and sinned against God. Broke His commandments again and again and again. Worshipped idols again and again. And God drove them out from the land of Israel and sent them into exile in Babylon. And we find them in the Psalms weeping beside the river when they remembered what they had lost as they were driven away from their land and from God. The closest thing I can think of in our culture is the Trail of Tears where the Native Americans were driven away from their land, driven away from their homes 
and carried on long treks across the countryside and planted on small reservations. A broken people. They call it the Trail of Tears for a reason. That's the picture we get from the word alienated. Lives that are shattered, dreams that are broken, people that are lonely, driven away by God and driven away from God because of our sin. Many of you know family members, co-workers, neighbors who are living right now in this brokenness because they, like we, before we met Christ, have been driven away from God and they have no hope until they meet the Savior. So the first phrase is hostile, excuse me, alienated, formerly alienated. The second phrase is hostile in mind. Here's a reminder who the instigator is in this war. Yes, God has driven us away. He is the actor in driving us away. But we were the ones who began the hostility. That's what he's saying here. We are the aggressors in this war. We are the ones who have taken the fight to God. We were the ones who began to be hostile. Our blatant rebellion against His character and His laws is described by the word hostile. And it's a war term. Someone may be sitting here tonight saying, I don't ever recall a time when I was hostile toward God. Sure, I haven't always done as I should. Sure, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But I'm not the person and never have been the kind of person who would shake his fist in the face of God. Well, maybe you haven't. Let me give you a startling definition of hostility from James chapter 4 and verse 4. Hostility doesn't have to be shaking your fist in the face of God. James says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Have you ever been a friend of the world? Have you ever loved your stuff more than you loved God? Have you ever loved your status? Or your money? More than you loved God? Have you ever loved your reputation more than you loved God? Have you ever loved your family more than you loved God? Actually, we do these things every day at points, don't we? That doesn't mean we've given up completely on loving God, but every day we see our hearts, don't we? When we have an opportunity either to obey God or to love ourselves, oftentimes we choose to love ourselves. And before we met Christ, we always wanted to love ourselves. We are hostile then, aren't we? Friendship with the world, loving the things of the world, is hostility toward God. So we have been hostile towards God. The picture then that we have is a picture of citizens living in a kingdom who take the loyalty and the wealth and the service and the ability that ought to be devoted to their king and use those things to set up their own little kingdoms. Maybe they're not throwing up siege works against the royal castle, but they are hostile nonetheless, aren't they? Taking what deserves to go to the king and keeping it for themselves. Friendship with the world. Loving of self. Hostile toward God. 
That's what we were before we met Jesus. We were at war with Him. The third phrase then is engaged in evil deeds. We were engaged in evil deeds before we met Christ. And He's just said that our minds are hostile. And now He's saying that on the level of our actions we were also hostile. Our deeds were evil. So if you don't believe that you're hostile in mind, just examine the evidence of your everyday life. And one of the ways Paul says that we should do this, not in this passage, but elsewhere, he says that we examine our everyday life, we can see our hostility towards God, we can see the goodness or the badness of our deeds by measuring ourselves against the law of God. And the easiest way to do that is just to think of the Ten Commandments. In your deeds... Have you had other gods before God? Let's just think about ourselves right now. Even this week as believers. Have you placed other things before God? Have you worshipped idols? In other words, have you given in to the craving to have a God that you can see and touch? Maybe even more close to home, have you missed used God's name this week. Prayed a prayer at the dinner table that you didn't really mean. Prayed a prayer at the beginning of Sunday school that was just words. Used God's name as an exclamation point at the end of a surprising sentence. Have you honored God's day? Remember the Sabbath day. New Testament, the Lord's day. Keep it holy. Don't do any laborious work. On my day, but set it apart for me. Have you done that? Have you honored your mom and dad? Children, are you honoring, obeying, respecting your mom and dad? Adults, are you respecting your mom and dad in the way that you speak to them, in the way that you speak about them? Sixth commandment don't commit murder. Had any murderous thoughts lately? Hateful thoughts. Seventh commandment. Don't commit adultery. Some of you may be committing adultery right now. And many of you may be committing adultery of the heart and mind. The sin of lust. Pornography. Undressing people of the opposite sex with your eyes. Eighth commandment. Stealing. Stolen from the IRS here as we close in on tax day. Stealing from your employer things that belong in the office that end up in your home. Stealing people's reputation by gossip. Have you been lying lately? Have you been coveting? All of us are pinned to the wall, aren't we? All these acts, says Paul, apart from the reconciling work of Jesus, are declarations of war. God has given us clear instructions. We have failed to listen. And certainly failed to obey. Now before we go on, I want to remind you that Paul is speaking here to real live people. He's speaking to a real live church in Colossae. And I'm speaking to a real live group of people, a church in Cincinnati. So the goal here tonight is not that we would all have theological agreement that we're sinners. The goal is not that we could all hear 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and say, Amen. Hopefully we would all say amen to that, but that's not the goal. The goal tonight is to help individuals in Colossae and in Cincinnati remember where they came from. The goal is for you as an individual Christian or unbeliever sitting where you are right tonight to remember where you came from. Have you thought lately about where you came from? Have you thought lately about how you used to act? And how you used to talk. And how you used to think. And how you used to live. Have you rehearsed in your mind how bad things were before you met the Lord? And how far God has brought you by His grace. That's what He wants. He doesn't want theological agreement only. He wants us to remember ourselves. And remember when we were at war with God. Remember when our ears were turned away from the Lord's commandments and our hearts were turned away from the Lord's ways and our minds were on the things of the flesh. Can you just pause for a moment and think about where God, where you were when God met you? What you used to be? You can remember where you were and you can see what Jesus has done on the cross and what He has done in your life, then you have ample reason why Jesus must take first place. Because, as John Newton said, He saved a wretch like me. That is war. That is what we need salvation from. And so now we come to the second heading, which is truce. First war, then truce. Here's the highlight of these verses. The highlight is the reconciliation that comes through Jesus in verse 22a. Verse 21, you were alienated, you were hostile, and you were evil. Verse 22, yet, or but, always an important word in the Scriptures. Yet, though you were evil, though you were hostile, though you were alienated, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. We thought about war in three parts. Let's think about truce in three parts from three phrases. The first phrase, He has now reconciled you. Reconciliation, as we said at the beginning, is bringing together of two hostile forces, two enemies, and bringing them into a relationship of friendship. That's what Jesus has done with us and God. We were enemies of God and God was an enemy of us and He has made us friends. So here, the picture of Jesus, as we think about war, the picture of Jesus is as an ambassador, a go-between, a peacemaker. So the enemies are defined, the battle lines have been drawn, the battle has raged, there has been a war. And now, defeated as we are, hostile as we have been toward God, God sends an ambassador to talks of truce. That's what reconciliation means. A truce between one-time enemies. And it's an amazing thing that God would send us His representative, His ambassadors. Because we were rebellious in our minds, verse 21. We were rebellious in our actions. 
We had been driven away from God's presence and all of it was our own doing. It's our fault that we were the way that we were. And yet God, in His mercy, met us with an ambassador. He met us with terms of truce. And then we see that He did it, Jesus did it, in His fleshly body. Don't miss that phrase. God did not simply send His terms through one of His peons. God did not send His terms through a carefully crafted, written out treaty. The phrase, in His fleshly body, reminds us that God sent His terms by becoming a man, by taking on flesh, by taking on a fleshly body. When it came time to present terms of truce, God didn't like a human king sit on his horse and sit on the high hill and send one of his agents across the field to meet in the middle and sign a pact. That's not how God did it. When it came time to present terms of truce, God took on flesh and he crossed the battlefield himself and he met us face to face in the person of Jesus to offer His mercy. And the way that He brought mercy, the way that He brought peace, the last part of verse 22a, it was in His fleshly body through death. Here's what's so amazing about our salvation. Not just that God would save people who were as far gone as we were, But more amazing than that, that He would do so at the price of His only begotten Son. We've used this illustration before, but all of you who have children know what it feels like to fear losing that child when they are sick, when they are in danger, when you're just not sure what's going to happen The fear that creeps into your heart that I might lose my baby is just heart-wrenching. And God knew the feeling of losing His child. God understood what He was getting into. And God loved the world so much. Loved alienated, hostile, evil sinners so much that He willingly gave up His boy. And Jesus went to the cross willingly as well, didn't He? In effect, this is what Jesus says when He presents the terms of peace to us. I will pay the reparations that you owe God because of your aggression in this war. I'll pay Him back. And not only that, I'll pay the war debts that you've incurred for yourself through your participation in the war. And I will stand in your place at the bar of justice as you are tried and convicted of heinous war crimes. I'll take the punishment. And any suffering which you've brought upon yourself, that too I'll carry. Everything that you have ruined for yourself, everything that you have brought upon yourself, everything that you have done to God to offend and anger Him, I will stand in your place and make it right. And I will do it all by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement? Can it be? Would He really pay everything? All the debts? No one's ever done that in a war. They paid all the debts? No, no one has ever done that. Full atonement, can it be? Yes, it can, through Jesus. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Third term, third heading is reconstruction. We've had war. God has presented the terms of truce through the death of Jesus. And now in the end of verse 22, He speaks of reconstruction. Reconstruction is what happens when a benevolent conqueror agrees to rebuild the defeated territory. It's part of the overall plan of peace. First there's a truce, then there's reconstruction. I'm from Mississippi, and so we know the term reconstruction there because many folks in our state are still living as though the Civil War had just been completed. Reconstruction was when the United States of America began to graciously rebuild in Mississippi and in the other states that rebelled against the nation. And that's what God does for us in Jesus. Verse 22b. He's reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Jesus wants to reconstruct what we have torn down by our warring with God. He wants to rebuild us. He wants to remake us in His own image. Two phrases here to look at. First, Jesus wants to present you before Him. In this case, Him being His Father. In other words, Jesus' goal is to so rebuild us, so remake us, that we would be presentable to God. God wants to, Jesus wants to so beautify us that we would be presentable to our new King. He wants to build up and beautify the war-torn territory of our lives. You see the wonderful illustration of reconstruction in Afghanistan. Not in every way, but in some ways. In Afghanistan, for the first time, little girls are able to go to school. Isn't that amazing? For the first time, young ladies, unmarried ladies, are able to have jobs and support themselves. For the first time, the citizens of that country have been granted the right to vote in their own government. And for the first time in a long time, the country has been opened for the progress of the gospel. So that when U.S. officials travel to Afghanistan and survey the scene and see what has happened in this territory that we are trying to reconstruct, they might be pleased with what they see. As beautiful as what they see is in the smiles of the children and the ladies and the men, the change that the gospel makes in the heart is greater. So that when God comes to survey the scenes of our reconstructed lives, He might be pleased and we might be beautiful for our new King. What are the changes? That we would be holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Holy simply means set apart to God. Blameless means set apart from sin. So that Not that we're completely perfect, but that when someone examines our life, there's not a lot of mud laying around that they can sling at us. And beyond reproach means a similar thing. God wants to so clean us up 
that it would be clear that we are His. And it would be clear that we are no longer what we used to be. That we would be clean. That we would be different. That we would be beautiful. It's a wonderful new threesome. The old threesome was alienated, hostile, and evil. The new threesome, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. That's a good trade. And I want you to notice that God's reconstruction plan is not mainly about giving us talents or accomplishments or positions. It's not about giving us titles. It's certainly not about giving us health, wealth, and prosperity. You can have all of those things and not be a Christian. Most people in America are healthy. Most people in America, comparatively to the world, are wealthy, prosperous. Lots of us have titles and positions and talents and accomplishments. And most of America is not Christian. You don't have to be a Christian for God to bless you in those ways. So becoming a Christian isn't about God blessing you materially or temporally. God's chief goal in reconstruction is none of those things, but actually character. Holy, blameless, beyond reproach. God wants to grant us character. More descriptively, He wants to grant us Christ-likeness. He wants to rebuild us in the image of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who's actually holy. He's the only one who's actually blameless or beyond reproach. And so if God is going to build in us holiness and blamelessness and the ability to be beyond reproach, what He's doing is actually changing our character into the image of Jesus. And we'll note that the progress is slow, but it's steady. So becoming a Christian isn't like getting a a brand new suit and everything's wonderful right away. Rather, it's a lifelong metamorphosis into becoming a new creature. God is rebuilding something beautiful out of war-torn hearts and lives. So we've seen war, we've seen truce by the death of Jesus, we've seen the reconstruction that Jesus brings to beautify His children. And finally, we see the terms of peace. We realize ultimately that the terms of peace were met by Jesus at the cross. Verse 20 said that He's made peace by the blood of His cross. And verse 22 said that He reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. So ultimately, Jesus met the terms for peace. And we understand that. But here in verse 23, we meet with a big if. And everything that comes before the if is contingent upon the if. So let's read verse 23. Because it throws quite a different look on everything that we've read so far. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So let's paraphrase, combining verses 22 and 23, let's paraphrase what he's saying. We are only truly reconciled and reconstructed if... We continue in the faith. We are only truly saved if we continue in the faith. If's an important word, isn't it? Does that mean that a Christian may lose his faith and thereby lose his salvation? I don't think so. In fact, I know that's not so. Rather, what verse 23 means is that true and saving faith always endures to the end. 
Someone who is truly reconciled with God always endures to the end. A faith commitment that does not last was not genuine faith. So here Paul is issuing a serious warning, isn't he? He's issuing a warning to people who may have started out as though they had been reconciled to God, but who have fallen by the wayside. And note that he's issuing the warning to a church. He's writing this letter to a church, the church of Colossae. And if you remember the first sermon or two, you remember that Paul liked this church. Paul thought this was a good church. Paul thought this was a healthy church. And he's writing to what he believes is a healthy church and warning them that they don't fall away from the faith. Amazing. So none of us in this room is immune. All of us should consider the possibility that we might fall away from the faith if we don't continue steadfast and firm. God's terms are clear. Those who want to benefit from the truce and the reconstruction must continue in faith. And let's just say up front that those aren't unreasonable terms. God's not asking us to do anything beyond believe that Jesus will save us. He's not asking us to pay back any of our war debts. He's not asking us to do any time for our war crimes. He's not asking us to make reparations. He's not asking us to foot the bill for our own reconstruction. He's not giving us a list of demands. He's simply asking us to trust Him to meet the demands Himself. That's a great deal, isn't it? I won't give you any demands. I'll meet them all. All I ask of you is that you trust me to meet them all and don't try to meet them yourself. Continue in faith. Continue trusting me. I'll take care of you. I'll do it. It's a generous offer, I think, isn't it? Very little is required of us here. But what is required must be kept without fail. That's why he uses the terms firmly established and steadfast and not moved. Those are three different ways of saying the same thing. Firmly established. Be firm. Steadfast. The word in Greek there is actually the word for firm. They didn't want to use firmly established and firm. That would be redundant. But that's what it really is. Be firm. And then again, be firm. And then don't be moved. Well, what does it mean not to be moved? It means to be firm. So three times in a row, be firm, be firm, be firm in your trust of me to save you. Don't be moved away from your hope in the gospel. That's what God asks. And only those who are not moved away from their hope in the gospel are truly saved. Now let's think before we close, about how we might actually be moved away from our hope in the Gospel. What's he talking about here? What does the kind of person look like that falls away from believing? Well, a quick survey of the ground we've covered will give us three ways that we might think about tonight. First, we might begin to live our lives as though there had never been a war. That's one way to move away from the hope of the Gospel. To live as though there had never been a war. To act as though God loves us because we're pretty nice folks. Hey, I go to church and I've learned my books of the Bible and I've never really done anything bad and I've always tried to help people. Surely God is not angry with me. Surely He's going to let me in. I mean, look at the way that I've lived. 
Well, if you think like that, you've moved away from the hope of the gospel because the gospel says you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind. It doesn't say you're pretty nice folks. It says you were at war with God. If we don't believe that, then we'll never realize our need for a Savior. So there's one way we might move away from the hope in the gospel. A second way would be to begin to live as though there had never been a truce. To live as though there had never been a truce. To act as though God doesn't actually love us. And that He hasn't actually forgiven us. These are the kind of folks that walk around beating themselves up every time that they sin. Look at what I've done. God is really going to let me have it this time. I'm, I must be beyond hope. I must have gone too far. God can never forgive me for this one. After all, I've done the same thing over and over and over again. Maybe if I just try a little harder, it could get better. Thinking like that is a move away from the hope of the gospel. Because the gospel says He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. His requirement has been met by Jesus. Jesus has paid it all. And if we believe that, we will hate our sin. But we will not hate ourselves and we will not lose hope in God's forgiveness. A third way we might move away from our hope in the gospel is to begin to live as though there were no such thing as reconstruction. To begin to live as though there were no such thing as reconstruction. To begin to just act any way we want. Because after all, we're forgiven. After all, we're not under the law. After all, God is merciful. And so what's it going to matter if I do this or that or the other thing that maybe is questionable? God will understand. And after all, I'm a Christian. And Christians are forgiven. That's the difference between us and the world. And so, I'm okay. I'm going to go to heaven. may not have any rewards, but I'm going to get there. Well, if we begin to think like that, if we begin to think that we can live any way we want, then we've thrown out the end of verse 22. We've thrown out reconstruction. And we have moved away from the hope of the Gospel. Because the hope of the Gospel says He reconciled you, verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The Gospel doesn't just purchase our forgiveness, it purchases our reconstruction. It purchases our beautification, our holiness. And if that doesn't translate into real life, then there's a real question as to whether we're hoping in Jesus and in the Gospel. So let me just conclude then by asking you this. Are you continuing in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, Or are you moved away from the hope of the Gospel? Are you constantly aware of how badly you need a Savior? Do you remember the war? Do you walk in full assurance that your sins are forgiven? Do you believe in the truth? Can you plainly see that God is making you holy and blameless and beyond reproach? Is there really reconstruction happening? If so, praise the Lord and keep going. Continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. But if not, may I remind you tonight that you can't continue in the faith unless you first begin in it. And may I urge you 
to be honest with yourself if you're an unbeliever tonight and to put your hope in the Savior who died to save you, to forgive you, to change you. May I urge you tonight to begin in the faith so that you might continue in the faith. Colossians